the What I Watch Tonight show. Good morning, afternoon or evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome to Pottercast from what I watch tonight. My name is Matt Hudson, and joining me from across the wizarding world is someone who can only be described as a badass boss lady. It's my amazing co-host, Morgan McGregor. Woo! How you doing? <laughs> Thank you for that wonderful intro. <laughs> Sorry. Anyone who's followed um, Mrs. Mer- Professor McGregor's Socials, you'll know that she's been a very busy lady this month, so uh, hence the uh, very accurate introduction. Well, thank you. Um, I don't know if it quite counts as being a boss lady, being sick and <laughs> eating a lot of food, but I do my best. <laughs> and you've had your uh, conventions you've been to as well, so... Yes. Yeah, and I've got um, major New Zealand film, um, well, like film pop culture sort of our version of Comic-Con coming up, which I'm really excited about. I'm going to cosplay for it. We've got Cho Chang coming. It's going to be great. Nice. Awesome. Well, it's more than I've got going on over here. I'm, <laughs> I'm in a dressing gown with a, a cup of tea and some ibuprofen trying to ward off sickness. So I think you win this this month. <laughs> yep. As we say every time, it's night time for me and it's morning time for Morgan and we're on different days. So we are going back to the future for you all. Thank you. <laughs> So right, so this is Pottercast, as you well know, but if you don't, this is Pottercast. It's our regular show where Morgan and myself, we discuss anything and everything relating to the wizarding world created by JK Rowling slash Rowling herself. And we've had episodes covering every Potter movie and the first Fantastic Beast movies. They are out there in the world, so check them out, come back into this one. But for this episode, we are, we're changing up a bit and we're focusing on something entirely different. Uh, so Professor McGregor, just what exactly has the sorting hat dictated that we speak about today? Ah, today we're going to talk about all about Draco Malfoy. I'm very excited. Malfoy. Draco Malfoy. Yes, yes, yes. The bleach-haired brat himself. <laughs> Draco, Tom Felton, who uh, played him in the movies, of course. So, yeah, we thought we'd sort of dive into the character of Draco today so kind of his early life where he went through the books slash films how he got on with everybody's favorite protagonist Potter some of our well, our favorite moments and kind of what he got up to after the saga so it was uh, it was Morgan herself who thought that Draco would be an interesting subject so I guess the first question is why Draco? Oh, because he, I guess he doesn't get a lot of analysis. We spend a lot of time talking about Harry or even Ron and Hermione. But then Draco's this really interesting um, sort of flip side of what Harry could have been like um, if he had perhaps a different upbringing or different values. And so, yeah, I just found that really um, a really good comparison to start off with personally. Yeah, I agree. And during the films and, and the books, He's kind of perceived as the 
the the, the yang to Harry's yin. He's kind of the bad version. He's the bad guy. He's his rival, which he is. But as we go through the story and has his arc, that that you know we start to chip away at that villainous, if you will, exterior, and we get to see something different. So we're going to go through that. But before that, looking at his name, I've got a quote from J.K. Rowling who said Malfoy wasn't always his name because. Like with any film slash book character, you just take their name as face value. Draco Malfoy, what a cool name. But he could have been called Draco Smart, Draco Spinks, or Draco Spongeon. How do you feel about that? <laughs> oh, no, I'm so glad. Draco Spongeon. Malfoy is sufficiently snooty and smug, but without being, like, really bad, you know? Like... He could also play it off as suave and sexy if he wanted to. So, like a suave, sexy, snooty guy. Yeah. So it was alliteration here. It was off the chart. Um, yeah. <laughs> what, was that is, what was that? Spungent? Spungen. Spinx Smart. Draco Smart. Or Spungen. Yeah, not a fan. <laughs> yeah, he's rubbish. Uh, Draco is came from the word dragon. And I believe his surname was is something French for I think it's like French or something for bad faith. So there is there is logic behind that surname, but Spongen, God knows what that the logic behind that was. She had Maybe she's in the bath in front of her, and she was like, "Hmm, that'd be a good name." Hmm, what, can I, I, what 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 object can I call him after? Ooh, Spongen. Sponge. Yeah. So <laughs> glad that we were with Malfoy. I always found Draco really um, fun because it's on Hogwarts crest. Oh, God, I'm going to butcher it. Do- uh, it's Basically, it says never tickle a sleeping dragon in Latin um, because dragon is Draco, so basically it could also be never tickle a sleeping Draco, which I always found really interesting. Oh, here it is. Draco Dormian's nunquam titulandus. And I'm I'm doing a very bad job. <laughs> but basically, it's either never tickle a sleeping dragon or never tickle a sleeping Draco if you're into that kind of you know, um, house boarding situation that they have. <laughs> Would you tickle a sleeping Draco? Um, maybe once, just the once. I think you would learn your lesson after that. <laughs> no, yeah, I think you have to try everything once. I agree with that. You don't want to mess up his um his prodigious haircut. So <laughs> the boy slash man himself, Draco Lucius Malfoy, born fifth of June, nineteen eighty, to of course Lucius Malfoy and Narcissa Malfoy formerly black as well, who were uh, both born into the old wealthy pure blood families. Both of the Malfoys and the Blacks were Slytherin for a long old time. But of course, with the Blacks, we have uh, Sirius Black, who Lucius, let's put it slightly, didn't like because of uh, because he didn't follow in their tradition. Yeah, well, no one really liked Sirius for doing that in his family. So what's new? <laughs> yeah, he didn't have the best life, Sirius, but he, he bought Harry a new wand, uh, a new um, broom. So, But yeah, Draco was raised in in an atmosphere of regret that Lord Voldemort had not succeeded in taking command of the wizarding community. And whilst he was a very spoilt child, who would have guessed that, he was also brought up with his father's like, this awful bigotry. So anybody who he was a muggle, a muggle-born, a half-breed, a blood traitor, or anyone who wasn't a pure blood, he was essentially raised to dislike. And that's something that carries through his arc, I believe. Yeah, which I think is... Um one of the first moments that we see is quite different to how Harry was brought up because we know that the Dursleys hate wizards, but other than that, we never get any indication that they have any form of bigotry or any serious form of bigotry. You would assume that them being bad people, that they're probably not 
the most um, racially friendly group of people. <laughs> but, um, I mean, you never get that indication that he was brought up to have serious beliefs because you sort of assume that even if the Dursleys had serious beliefs, they wouldn't even bother trying to um, impart them on Harry. They would probably just leave him to it. And because he hated them so much, he would probably be pretty prone to um, disagree with anything they believed in anyway, whereas Malfoy idolised his parents. So obviously he's going to absorb what they're telling him to absorb. Yeah. Yeah, and he absorbed it like a spongeon quite well. Ha <laughs> 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 we got there. First pun of the night. Uh, yeah, he, as a kid, he used to hang around with his the with the Death Eater kids. So obviously his father, Lucius, was a Death Eater. So hanging around the no circles, he'd already made friends with Theodore Knott and Vincent Crabbe. And he was actually due to go to a school in Northern Europe that taught the dark arts, but his mother actually didn't want him to go too far away, which is quite sweet, really. So she packed him off to Hogwarts, and that's kind of where... The story that we all know begins. Yeah, so he was supposed to go to Durmstrang, I think, and instead he went to Hogwarts, which yeah. I suppose was good for him in the end. It was good for the story. It was good for the story. <laughs> Don't know what we would have done <laughs> without him. <laughs> exactly. Surely, like, with that's a pretty like lame reason to not like send your son to a school that you want to because you're wizards, right? You can apparate anywhere you want. So if you want to visit him. It takes the same amount of time. I guess so, but it's also the... Oh, actually, I suppose. But it's also it's that kind of motherly bond of literally being closer to your to your spawn. I guess having to apparate, you're still thousands of miles away. I'm just surprised that they didn't want to homeschool him. Because that kind of seems like the wankery kind of like, we're rich, pure blood <laughs> kind of people. We don't want you um, fraternising with like mudbloods. We're going to teach you. That's a good point. So, like, wouldn't they hire, like, oh, we're hiring the best dark arts teachers and the blah, 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 and the nothing can be spared for my little Draco kind of situation. And then he gets to live in the house with you, which is great. Yeah, and you can literally mould him how you want him to be your heir almost. Yeah, so, I mean, that was almost a fatal flaw of them sending him to Hogwarts because that sort of gave him the opportunity to be sent off on the right track, nearly. Yeah, and mix with the wrong people or fraternise, as I say, with the wrong people. So I guess moving on to Hogwarts, that takes us on to our first segment, which is his relationship with Harry. Bet you loved that, didn't you, Potter? Famous Harry Potter. Can't even go to a bookshop without making the front page. Good one, Goyle. You're absolutely right. Saint Potter. Potter, is it true you fainted? I mean, you actually fainted. Why so tense, Potter? My father and I have a bet, you see. I don't think you're going to last ten minutes in this tournament. Shut up, Malfoy. Yeah, which is so interesting. I think it's such a wonderful relationship to analyse, just because there's so many different parts to it. Firstly, I definitely ship... Um, Draco and Harry. Drary, I'm a big fan. I ship it. <laughs> so we just get that out on the table right now. I ship it. Thank you. I've never, I haven't, I haven't been aware of uh, Drary before. What? I'm kind of, I have, I'm, honestly, I hold my hands up. I'm now, when I get off, I'm going to oh sit in the bathroom God, and like, furiously Google this. It is big. It is so big. It's almost bigger than the people who ship Harry and Ginny together. Like, 
it's a thing. I feel like I've been living under a rock for the past 15 years. I can't believe this. You dare hold a Harry Potter podcast and you don't even know about Drury. This is just... Uh I haven't delved into the into that side of the fan fiction. You have there, so is, much fan fiction to catch up on. It's insane. Are there any dirty flicks about them? Absolutely. I'm, I, as I say, in the bathroom tonight, I will be reading and watching. <laughs> There's so much to read. Yeah, so Drary, Harry and Draco in love forever. Because, like, the way that they hate each other could almost be interpreted as, like, I don't want people to know that I like them or I don't want that old school playground type thing. Yeah. Yeah, Like pulling each other's hair and like all the rest of it, obviously it gets a bit more serious down the line, but then of course they save each other and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, very romantic pair. I I like the idea of that. Now I'm sold. Sod this um, Draco and Hermione crap. Let's get Drary on by. I'm I'm all for this now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's just a beautiful little love story. Really. That's what Harry Potter is. Yeah, but really all along, when he when he refused his handshake upon meeting him on the Hogwarts Express, really it was a declaration of undying eternal love. It really was. Well, in the books, there's a lot of, like, Harry was staring at Draco over, always gazing at each other and always following each other down corridors, and it's all very romantic and lovely. It sounds it's nice. It's just school-time love. Just imagine the, the soundtrack in the background would be lovely. Oh, just so many saxophones playing? As they gave yeah. each other across the Great Hall. Yeah, porn music, basically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's that, well, that's how they met. They met on the train, whether they were uh, furiously uh, lusting <laughs> off each other. In the movies, they met on the train. Actually, before this, you asked me if um, I could pick out any differences with Draco. But actually, they met in uh, Diagon Alley in the book. So Awesome, okay. And so they met in Madame Mal- Malkin's? I want to say she does the like tailoring of their um, robes and there was one kid already in there when Harry walks in and he's kind of the first kid Harry actually meets who's a wizard. So he's kind of Harry's first, if you want to like love it for a sight sort of situation. Um, Mm -hmm. Except Draco's being a right C word (laughs) to me. Well done for restraining yourself. He's just, yeah, he's just being like, He's being Draco. He's better than Madame Malkin. He's, and then he's talking to Harry all about like, oh, what house are you going to be in? Oh, well, you don't want to be in, you know, obviously you don't want to be in Hufflepuff and definitely don't want to be in Gryffindor and Ravenclaw. You want to be in Slytherin. Like, this is the place to be. And Harry's like, I have no idea what this kid is talking about. <laughs> Your houses? What's Quidditch? What's going on? And then so the kid, like, I can't remember what he does, but he gets real mad at Madame Malkin. So then they leave um, without buying anything. His mum drags him out and is like, oh, some lady down Nocturne Alley is way better than this place. Um, we don't want to fraternize with, you know, people who aren't Death Eaters, basically. And then so Hagrid comes in and Harry's like, what the fuck is that Hufflepuff? <laughs> like, <laughs> what's going on? And Hagrid's basically like, oh, Slytherins, those are bad people. And then Harry obviously already has his, like, preordained, like, idea of right and wrong, bad houses, good houses, good people, bad people. So that's in the book. But in the movie, yeah, they meet on the train and they have sort of a similar introduction. That's what I love about book slash movie adaptations. In the book, they can get away with that exposition. Obviously, in the film, just having them meet on the train, it sets them them up as 
uh, opposites, and then you then go into the houses yeah. further on in the films. But I like how the books can just give that exposition and have it as part of the story without it seeming clunky. Uh, in in the film, it would have to me it would have seen out of place if suddenly introduced yeah. Diagon Alley in the houses just like that. Yeah, it was quite. It would have been quite full on in the movie, I reckon, especially because we didn't. We didn't go too far into what happens in Diagon Alley in the movie. We get sort of the Ollivanders and we get Gringotts, but we don't really get any of the other, you know, um, stores he needs to go in or interactions that he has with other people. Yeah, so I do really like um, that Draco's sort of his first impression of what um, wizarding kids are like, not just because I ship Drury, but also because I think it really sets them up as being two opposites to keep your eye on for the duration of the series. Um, like you could almost pass it off as oh, either this kid is nobody and we're never going to see him again, or he's going to be really, really, really important. And this conversation really, really sets up a lot of like context for later things that go on. So yeah. I really like that. But in the movie, I think it's much better played off in the train when Draco introduces himself in front of, you know, Ron as well. So part of the reason why Draco had a dislike for Potter going forward because of his friendship with Hermione and Ron. Yeah. For all the reasons we mentioned before, Draco was very much against those types, quote unquote, of people. And he also he also had heard rumours from his father that Harry could be the next Voldemort. So he wanted to bring him on, to, on board into the Slytherin house. Yeah. He didn't want him hanging. He, he saw him hanging around with these kind of losers, if you will, as detrimental. And hence the offer of a handshake in the film. Yeah. And I think he would have seen it as really great if he could have had Harry as his best friend. I think that initially that was his massive goal was to have Harry as his best friend because yeah, he knew that Harry was going to be you know, sort of famous in school and popular. And I guess it's better to be friends with someone popular and be able to ride that wave than it is to be enemies <laughs> with someone popular and have to gain your notoriety through that. Also, being a Death Eater, he probably wanted someone to follow rather than be a leader, which is what he ends up being. Yeah, and Potter's just a bit cooler than like Goyle and crap as well. Yeah, but... in terms of names and a lot of other things. Especially yeah. so if you're in love with someone, obviously you would want to be friends with them, right? And want them in the same house as you, so you can sleep in the same bedroom as them. Yeah, and like smell them when they're asleep. Is that what people do now? Or? Uh, <laughs> unsure. He, I, I say that because he looks the type to smell somebody when they're asleep. Type. He definitely looks like the type. He looks like the type to just like leave gifts around as well, but not say who they're from. Yeah, leave and leave around. overly romantic post-it notes, but again, without saying who from. Like, oh, I just happened to like pick up two glasses of butterbeer. Did you want one? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, just accidental situations, definitely. Yeah. I think we missed out on a lot. I reckon Harry should have been a Slytherin. I think we should just have an whole episode on the ship and these guys and how we could what, how we could set them up in different situations. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> my my lips touch this butterbeer glass. Here, have this one. Yeah. Oh, I have I can... to go and read some fan fiction after this. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> we all know by the time this show airs, we all know what Morgan's been getting up to. <laughs> it's been a while since I've read some fan fiction, to be honest. So I should probably give it a go again. 
Yep, and I'm go- I'm definitely going to. I hope it'll be as good as what we've come up with. But yeah, Draco and Harry, they meet, they start off, that's how they meet. And obviously, as we go through the saga, I'll refer to it as that because Morgan is more clued up on the books than I am. And of course, we'll be talking about the films as well as this is a movie podcast. So um, the saga, as we go along, there are ups and downs and there it goes from the Quidditch rivalry to the Goblet of Fire where Draco is shouting to the rooftops for Cedric Diggory to win. He's got the stinky Potter badges. <laughs> so we have this sort of, the, that's what I liked about those kind of first 50% of the Potter saga films was I had that childlike quality where you'd have badges and posters of about things like Stinky Potter, which is like the most churlish thing you could have, but it still felt fun, even though, it, and it was it was kind of a hot, not harmless, but childish bullying, which yeah. Draco was very good at. But then he obviously, in those films, started to show his true colours, especially around Hermione. Yeah, so you sort of you start off with bullying, which is obviously bad. Don't do that. But yep. he doesn't do anything that could seriously harm Harry. The worst he does is try to get Harry expelled, which is like, whatever. And so it's quite innocent. You can almost, you you know, you hate him and you don't like him because he's mean to the main character. But you never are like, geez, this guy's really dangerous. He's something to like seriously worry about. You're obviously concerned with, you know, Voldemort or even Snape, but Draco's not someone you need to worry about so much. He's just sort of a douchey other student. And sort of that underlying racism that he has almost is just something that is like, yeah, and that's why he's a bad guy. You never really go into the like, oh, he's actually like, he could do something really bad with this racism that he has. Yeah, he just comes across as a bit of a, a swatty nuisance. But um, yeah, that's how he starts off. But it's when he... uh. So when he sneers at Hermione and calls her a filthy mudblood and everybody gasps that we start to really see his true colours come out. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that at this point we don't know what that means because Harry doesn't know what that means. And so we almost, like, we can definitely tell that he's like a racist and a bad guy, but this is that moment where I guess at the same time as Harry we're sort of becoming clearer on the fact that, like, oh, he's got, like, some shit going on in his head. Like, that's wrong. You know, like he's actually a bad guy. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's the it's the gasp that gives it away as well. And this again, it sets up his his true colours and the fact that he cannot be Harry or be with Harry in a sense of he can see how popular that Potter is. Uh, they have a duel in the Chamber of Secrets. They have that excellent duel together with um, Gilderoy Lockhart and Snape as official. Official, so they actually get a chance to waggle their wands at each other there. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> I I love that scene as well because it has Gilderoy against Snape at the same time, which is just such a great pairing. It's yeah. more of a caricature of Harry versus Draco, I think. And uh, I, I, I just like it for the fact that they finally get to face off and it also shows that Draco, Dra- Draco, Draco does have, you know, he's clearly skilled. Yeah. But, and he's and he also not going to play by the rules as well. Yeah, and that you know, the education system is almost encouraging their feud. Like, yeah, they is. set up the duel together. Snape's, like, helping Draco get one over Harry and that sort of stuff. It's quite disturbing when you think about it. I mean, they should be trying to mend their relationship or prevent bullying, but if anything, they're encouraging it. 
uh, yeah, and we know uh, Lockhart, Lockhart kind of disappears after these next these films, but Snape obviously is ever present, and we see his his snaky like arc. We all know how much you love a bit of Snape, but yeah, the um, the Hogwarts didn't really help, and their anti-bullying laws weren't particularly very good. No, their anti-bullying policies were almost non-existent. In fact, there is no attempt at reformative justice or reparative justice or whatever it's called these days at schools or anything. There wasn't even like, well, they had one, um, one detention together in the first book or the first movie, but that wasn't really an attempt to stop bullying. That was just an attempt to punish both of them. So yeah, fight guys. That was whoever wins, wins just fight on the table. Oh, look, a snake. But it, it, yeah, it just showed that Draco wasn't willing to play by the rules. He'd bend them to his way slightly. So again, a bit more development for his character, which I like. Yeah, I think it was really good. And I think it's great that we get to see that development for such a minor character. Or such a minor character, but, you know, there there's so many main characters almost in Harry Potter that you would imagine it's quite hard to develop them all. But actually we do get a really good grasp of who Draco is and what his development is like as a wizard. And it's, it's not all, well, it is mostly doom and gloom, but as we go further, you mentioned earlier on that the two can't, the two actually, they they essentially save each other's lives at a few times, especially towards the end of the saga. Yeah. Not before Harry nearly kills Draco with one of the half-blood prince curses. Yeah, well, I think Harry was just being a dumbass, so... <laughs> Yeah, he beat oh, open up a can a of Lupas. on someone that they don't know what it does. Like, how dumb do you have to be? I'm sorry, Harry, but that was just daft. Yeah, it damn near killed him. Yeah, yeah. And he was actually very lucky that he got away with it. That no one yeah, died. <laughs> Harry obviously felt remorse afterwards, but it was the fact they kind of went there without, without fully knowing his actions. And it was against his great rival, Draco, as well. Yeah, he's very lucky that it wasn't against someone that he didn't hate as much as Drake. Yeah. He should have got one on Voldemort, though. Jesus Christ, Harry. <laughs> we could have, he could have used that one, couldn't he, instead of the crap he tried. Expelliarmus, but then when it comes to Draco, he's going to pull out the freaking Sictum Simpra. Like, pick one, <laughs> Harry. You're going to go up against the Dark Lord with a disarming spell, and you're going to go off against your, your classmate bully with something that will slash their insides open. Yeah, right. <laughs> Good theory. He's like one of those... He's like a two-can Van Damme. Yeah. He has a couple of cans of butterbeer and thinks he's a tough guy until he comes up against a real man, Voldemort, and suddenly, yeah, uh, disarm spell. Yeah. That's, a, that's actually quite a good point, actually. Draco gets his own back by booting Potter in the face later on. Yeah, which is fair enough. Yeah, so you slash my insides, I crush your nose. And Draco gets a chance to show the cracks in his psyche because... He has been aligned with the Death Eaters, obviously, to appease his father, try and get his father back in Voldemort's good books. And he's tasked with a a rather big mission from Voldemort involving a bearded headmaster. Yeah, it's quite a lot of weight to be on a 16-year-old's shoulders, if I'm being honest. Like, he... I mean, obviously, he shouldn't have taken it on, but what are you going to do when the Dark Lord says it's either that or your family's in the pits with, you know, a mass murderer. So... What do you decide on doing? You're like, yeah, I guess I'll kill like my principal. It's fine. Yeah, just just like that. And I mentioned that because it's kind of it, that's the first one of the first real times where we see the the other side of him come out. Because when he when he's up there in the tower, 
point and he's disarmed Dumbledore, he can't go ahead and kill him. And we know we know obviously what happens after that. But it's later on after that when Harry, Ron and Hermione have been captured by the Snatchers and taken to Malfoy Manor and Harry's face is all bruised up because of Hermione's curse. And Bellatrix wants to know, have we got Harry Potter? Because we cannot go back to Voldemort and tell him unless we know. And she asks Draco to positively ID him. And they share, and it's it's quite it's good, very good acting actually by Tom Felton. They share that scene together, that moment where he's looking in Harry and Harry's looking at him, and there's that kind of unspoken moment where this is the kind of a very slight, but it's a turning point where he doesn't throw Potter to the wolves. Yeah, and I think he was taking a really big risk when he did that. Obviously, what they make it really clear in the books. I don't know how clear it was in the movies, but basically, he's. He's Bellatrix's biggest fan. He loves her. He wants to do mm-hmm. nothing but please her as much as he can. And obviously he feels the same about his parents and he knows how much it would mean for their family as well if he was to positively ID Harry and they were to bring the Dark Lord over and he would be there. So he's actually he's he's throwing a lot of his family under the bus and he's doing it for no reason other than he doesn't want Harry to die, which is massive because the alternative is possibly that his family will die. Nearly. Like, that's a big that's a big risk to take. Exactly. And it's the first time we really see that. In the film, it's made clear that he is doing it for the greater good. Mm. It, it, his relationship with Bellatrix isn't as developed as, you know, many other people's, shall we say, but it, you can tell in the film by his eyes and his face that he has purposely misled Bellatrix yeah. into not adding him. Yeah, and he's doing it because he knows that actually this is the right thing to do, even if it's going to mean bad things for his family. Yeah, he couldn't kill Dumbledore. He hasn't he wouldn't ID Harry and because he knows what's gonna happen after that. So we've spent the first like most of the time we know, we've known Draco He's had that, like we say, either that swattish bully or he's becoming more power hungry and we can see him becoming the bad guy. But it's these cracks which really start to emerge, which make us think twice. And then we have the, the moment in the room of requirements where it's all actually turned on its head and it's actually Harry doing the doing a good deed. But that's more in his in his character. Yeah, I think that's really within Harry's character to not let someone die. I think he never, ever wanted that for Draco. And I don't think Harry would want anyone to die except for maybe Voldemort if he could help it. So that's really in character. But I think I think it's something within his character that Draco didn't understand before then. I think Draco didn't fully understand who Harry is as a person, which is a good guy who doesn't actually want anyone to die and who actually, even if he doesn't like you, still respects that you have the right to live. And I think that that would have been massive for Draco. I think that Draco would have expected and I think Draco had such low self-esteem in terms of what he thought people actually thought of him they probably would have expected Harry to just leave him there it, he would have been really surprised I think yeah and yeah, that so that is more in keeping with Harry's character but still it showed that whilst they may well in terms of the book slash film saga as we know it they may never be best of friends but yeah. it, there was something there between them. There, whether it was respect, whether it was just the decency, or whether it was just a being Draco potentially being this misunderstood character that we all believed he was just rotten to the core. It shows that it it was good 
character development for both of them. And we only see more of that with Draco in the Battle of Hogwarts, where well, his, he and his family make a big choice. But before that, when Voldemort's carrying Harry's body, whom he thinks he's slain, he calls he calls uh, Draco over and he gives him a really awkward hug. But yeah. Draco's very Draco's very reluctant to go. Well, I would be very reluctant to hug an attack lord anyway. I don't think anyone's yeah. like, yes, and running into his open arms. That was such an awkward <laughs> moment. That does not happen in the books. And I don't know how you would ever write that in the book. I, it just seemed so off character for Voldemort to me, personally. The fun part of that is Tom Felton said they did that scene about 20 times. Oh, God. And only, only once, only once did Ray find throw in that hug. Oh my just to God. just to just to change it up and just to so is, make it as make it all good like that and that's why the scene is so awkward because obviously Tom Felton stayed in character and just, you know he hasn't put his arms up he's as stiff as a board and Voldemort's got this sort of strange like creepy uncle hug pat on the back and it, and it was the one they used in the film but it wasn't scripted. I just I what in the world was Ralph thinking? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if, it's, if I was Tom Felton, I'd been like, what the fuck is going on? What the Lots of people wanted to cuddle him at that time, I think. Yeah, yeah, same. Exactly. See, yes, <laughs> um, but yeah, that wasn't scripted. But he wasn't. He was reluctant to to go because, again, he knew what was going to happen if Voldemort took over. Uh, but he did go. He went to be with his family. But the story didn't end there. Mm. Good for the Malfoys, honestly. Actually, doing something semi decent. <laughs> We're running away, but for them that is a that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's the most decent thing that they've ever done is just run away. <laughs> they should have proud done that family, a lot yeah. more often. Yeah, and that's what they did. Draco fled with his mother into into the Hogwarts afternoon, and that's when they turned their back on, or seemingly, as you'd say, turned their back on well, the dark arts, and that, and they they wanted no more affiliation with with the bad guys. So it's kind of. At that moment, we've seen Draco go from the snotty kid in the films on the train, who's been racist, who's been a bully, who will put anybody down and step on anybody to get ahead, to being this guy who just went off with his mother to to, to escape this bad life. That's really what he was all about underneath it. Yeah, and I've always wondered what ended up happening with Lucius, because we see that massive turning point for, for Draco when he doesn't positively ID Harry in the Malfoy manner. And then later on we see it with um, his mum, Narcissa, when she says to the Dark Lord that Harry's dead when he isn't. And those are big, massive risks that they're taking in terms of how it could affect their family and it's massive turning points in terms of who who they're affiliating with and, who, you know, who they're trying to help. But we don't actually see that with Lucius at all. So the fact that all three of them ran off, I'm wondering if Lucius is like, hey, guys, why are we running? What's happening? What's going on? <laughs> we're still big fans of old Baldy. So who knows? I kind of like to think that Narcissa dumps him and he goes off and, I don't know, dies, hopefully. <laughs> You've got a real uh, affection for Lucius. He a nasty piece of work okay i think narcissa wouldn't have been that bad if she would have just like not married him you know yeah and he was punching above his weight somewhat i think as well oh definitely yeah let's just just throw that in there somewhere but as far as i'm aware after the 
the Battle of Hogwarts, I think he just kind of retired within himself, basically, and just stepped away from everything. I hope he just, like, stayed in his library and his giant mansion and never bothered anyone ever again. Yeah, I can't... Uh, he, As far as I'm aware, he was, certainly wasn't arrested because because he turned at that last minute. He he, uh, he turned away. So lucky. <laughs> yeah, from the Death Eaters and Voldemort's gang. That's why he wasn't arrested because he dropped all of his basically dropped all of all of his associations. But yeah, he carried on collecting the dark dark artifacts, but never actually used them, and just kind of just led a quiet life as far as I'm aware. Good, stay quiet. Yeah, yeah, piss off, Lucius. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that was Draco's arc. I mean, before we go into that, I mean, how we've kind of gone on, but what would you say were his key traits, his key attributes, his key? What do you think of when you think of Draco? No one asked your opinion, you filthy little mudblood. How do you know what I am? Done things that would shock you. Oh yeah, terribly funny. Really witty. God, this place has gone to the dogs. Waiting until my father hears that Dumbledore's got this oaf teaching classes. <laughs> Maybe if the fat lump would give him this a squeeze, he'd remember to fall on his fat ass. <laughs> give it here, Malfoy. No. Oh, that's killed me. It's killed me. He trusts me. I actually just see a family man, interestingly enough. I see a guy who just would do anything for his family, and unfortunately his family's bad, so that means that he is bad. And then I think that he's gained a lot of traits from them as well because of that. So I see him as a family man. I see him as someone with really low self-esteem and an inferiority complex. And I see him as someone who, I guess is struggling internally with doing what's right and what he knows is right and doing what will make his family happy. Yeah, that's pretty much I always saw him initially as that, you know, arrogant bully, somebody who didn't want to be, somebody wouldn't want to hang around. We've all known a kind of Draco before, somebody maybe potentially thought they were better than others. Yeah. I know somebody with a, with a similar haircut who <laughs> does share similar characteristics and I think he's a bit of an idiot. <laughs> he's intelligent. It's well, it's one of the things that I think gets glossed over because sometimes in the films he can come across as a bit of a bumbling idiot at times. Yeah. But he's very, I, I find him very clever. He's very quick, at, very capable of coming up with these plans and schemes. I, and Yeah, I think that he's a victim of his own upbringing. And I think that yeah. um, not everyone is. Obviously, Harry had a shitty upbringing, but that, he, that didn't affect him being a good person. But I think for Draco, it did just because he is so eager to please the people around him. So he's a victim of his own upbringing. I do think he's a wanker, and I don't think that being a victim of your own upbringing necessarily um, forgives you of anything that you've done. I still think he's a total dick, but I do think that he's a bit of a victim as well. And so I do tend to look at him more as, yeah, as a, as someone who could have been a Harry, if maybe circumstances were different. Yeah, a kind of sympathetic villain, if you will, because he's not really the—he's never really the villain of the piece. He's just kind of the the obstacle in the way of our of our heroes at school. Yeah, he's just an addition there, and I think that it really well rounds the narrative as well. And you don't yeah. just have one bad guy that you're fighting against; you have, you know, different levels of bad guys. If you... <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he's he's obviously just a jealous kid. He's always been brought up to be the centre of attention, and then. Harry turns up, who's a chosen one, and has this reputation behind him. 
and he's obviously threatened by that, so he goes out of his way to belittle Harry, to go do everything against him. So it's obviously that jealousy side of it, but at the same time, the opposite of jealousy is sometimes people can just be... Like, like, I think you've said it yourself, that sort of self-sadness. He obviously didn't have that confidence within himself to just to be able to be himself. He had to be somebody else and put other people down and not just let Harry be Harry and also just but just try to succeed on his own terms. Yeah, I think he did have really low self-esteem. So, I mean, it's interesting because I think he had, I think he's one of those people that has a really outwardly high self-esteem that you would never pick up on. But internally, you know, they're portraying this overly confident character because, you know, internally they're just like, no one likes me. Um, Everyone likes Harry so much, and I need to do all this to please my parents, and I can't do it, and, you know, all the rest of it, so. Yeah, and as we're going to find out as we go further on, the any time he's kind of challenged, the, you know, the facade falls down very quickly. Yeah, it does. <laughs> so, I mean, on that, let's let's talk about the, the key moments, the, the, the major Malfoy moments. Chronologically, the first one is meeting Harry, which you've mentioned. Without that, we don't have that rivalry. Yeah, and I think it was really important to set that up sort of immediately so that we get that, you know, things aren't always peachy keen at Hogwarts. Yeah, and also you show he has Crab and Goyle at the same time, so we kind of see their little gang together, and it shows that his disdain for those lower than him. And yeah, it get, like you say, gets it straight away that, right, Harry, this is a fun kids' film slash book. Harry's on his way to the Wizards of School, but of course, not everybody who's going to be there is going to be good. Yeah, not everyone loves him, unless yeah. you're a dragon um, fan. Which there are quite a lot of, by the <laughs> just judging by the internet, but I didn't know about Drarry, so I wouldn't trust me. <laughs> I think, yeah, that's probably the first one, but I think that we only really have a few key moments in the first movie for Draco. Like, we have the yeah. Remember All that he steals from Neville, which shows them as... Yeah a bully to everyone but it wasn't you know emotionally very um key for him but then you have him in um the forbidden forest and he's sacking it he's scared out of his mind <laughs> and you're like oh big boy draco huh <laughs> scared, yeah, of, a scared of a bit of dark yeah scared of a little werewolf and a bit of woodland and and then there's harry who actually has something to fear in the woods but doesn't really understand it and harry's like fine and he would probably even protect draco if he needed to in in those woods so i think that's a really like like a key moment for the two of them actually in terms of their relationship together yeah i mean theoretically it's probably fairly positive to surmise that he would have tried to save him so yeah, yeah. i agree with that whereas i mean draco would have just tried to run off at that point <laughs> yeah he would have run off run like, off crying with his pants in a twist he would have pulled a malfoy and run away so <laughs> exactly which is what they became good for in the end yeah i guess chamber of secrets you have the moment where harry and ron have taken the polyjuice potion and they're talking to the dis- to draco in I disguise love that. i love that imagine so i'm not gonna go all dreary on this whole podcast but imagine <laughs> okay so just imagine for one second that you're harry potter and you're in love with draco but no one knows it you disguise yourself as one of his best friends. You go into basically his home, and then he sits there and starts talking about you obsessively. Potter, Potter, or oh, everyone loves Potter. You'd be like, oh my god, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you you want to hope he's wearing baggy trousers before you don't want to get too excited. <laughs> These are children. 
<laughs> oh, fuck yeah. Um, I'll bloody you. Um, but it's, it's good for, for Draco because we get to see that he is the same in, in the common room. He's the same as he is outside of the common room. Yeah. So he hasn't changed his tone about anybody. So it's, it, again, it's a bit more character development. And he, plus he has a few digs at Goyle and his intelligence. <laughs> read i didn't know you could read apparently that was improvised so i hear he's quite good at improvising isn't he i think so i think he's a fantastic actor tom felton uh yeah and i i'm gonna get into more into a bit more about tom the man shortly but going on to i mean we've mentioned that obviously they face off together in this film as well and um draco tries to cheat and he uh uses a spell he's not meant to and he obviously gets the less snake out uh, and harry then shows that he's got that bond with the animals but yeah so that's another major moment in that same film yeah and i think that that was just really cool i don't know how much it um develops their relationship together but it is a key moment for draco and and showing that he will undercut people definitely i think the main part of that is when potter knocks him down he kind of looks around for almost help almost or yeah he looks he looks at the people around him or the authority around him to kind of some some help or some 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 something to build him back up again. Kind of reminds show, him that reminds us he's still only a kid. Yeah, it does show him and Harry is quite e- equally matched as well in terms of their skills at that point. Because none of them is is really neither of them are really going to win unless someone gives them one hell of a spell. So it shows a lot about him in that scene. And I guess the next major moment is a. Uh, one which is something that happens to him. He gets a he gets a right hook to the face in the Prisoner of Azkaban. Damn right, it's bad time to be honest. You enjoyed that bit, didn't you, as well? Absolutely. I think that it's so fantastic that the first one, the first person to actually get one on Draco is Hermione, the Mud Blood Woman, basically, and I love that. One, the one person he's been talking down to the most, and then when they are facing off against each other. He still starts snivelling. He's snivelling the whole time. And as soon as he gets a whack, he runs away. He runs away. Like a Malfoy. Exactly. Screaming at his friends, don't tell anybody. But as soon as he's challenged, again, you can see the facade starting to crumble. And it's good character development for the both of them. But before that, you had him face Buckbeak, which was a key moment as well. Because he just wasn't listening to his teacher. Because he thought he was better than his teacher. And then he got, yeah, and he saw Harry succeed with Buckbeak, and um, he tried it himself, and got himself into a spot of bother. Yeah, which is moronic when you really think about it. <laughs> it's another word we didn't use to describe him at times. Yeah, Malfoy the moronic, moronic Malfoy. Just looking into the character, and just from what I know about the fandom, one of the one of most people's favorite favorite Malfoy moments came in the Goblet of Fire. When uh, Mad-Eye Moody had a bit of fun and turned him into a ferret. <laughs> that was fantastic. <laughs> Bouncing him up and down. Moody, is that a student? No, it's a ferret. <laughs> <laughs> well, technically it's a ferret. I <laughs> love that. I love it. And I think that would have been very traumatising, though, for Malfoy, when you think about it. That would have been embarrassing well, yeah, as hell. Everybody around, everybody's watching, laughing, and it just basically yeah, turning him to the most like a, almost like a weasel, just a ferret being bounced around. And of course, what happens when he gets uh, turned back into himself? He starts spouting about his father, and he runs away. Malfoy, the marathon runner. They're actually <laughs> yeah. really into running in the Malfoy family. 
Yeah, maybe that's just one of the traits that... He just wants people to see how good he is at running because they do a lot of it at the Malfoy Manor. They have like a running track and everything. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, but these people, all he wanted to do was keep fit, but these bastards were getting in the way. Exactly. And there's not much running to do as a ferret, and he knew that. I hadn't thought, in a, thought about it like that, but now you've mentioned it, what have I, what, I, I've completely got this guy all wrong. He's just a runner. That's all he is. He's training for the Olympics or the Quidditch, the wizard version. Whatever they have. Yeah. He, he, he just happened, just because he looks scared and he's in tears every time doesn't mean anything. It means nothing. It's just how he gets ready for a race. Yeah, that's just his. That's, yeah, that's just his t- testosterone coming out. So. Yeah, his pre-race testosterone. <laughs> this comes out through his eyes. Um, I guess we mentioned it again when he when he catches the invisible Harry in the Half Blood Prince and he boots him in the face. Yeah, well, that's just Malfoy, isn't it? <laughs> I think he would just take any possibility, like opportunity that he can, to undermine Harry if he feels like there's no risk for him. And he knew that there was very little risk for Harry at that point. It was another good development of the character because he he knew Harry was there, and it was a, yeah you know he it's a first it's the what well, the one real time he actually got the upper hand on Potter, and it, it kind of showed us that in this film going forward, maybe he means business. Yeah, and I think also um, he was the only one who noticed Harry had come into the. Um, the carriage everyone else had yeah. noticed so he's obviously got a very keen eye and you know he's got his wits about him he's one to look out for he could be very dangerous if he wanted to yeah and the fact that he didn't just catch him he paralyzed him and then brutally just <laughs> breaks his nose as well it wasn't just a case of you know giving him a bit of a telling off or a seeing so he paralyzed him and beats him up so but whilst also, he was in that state yeah the flip side though is that he could have killed harry as well like but he didn't. He could have killed Harry, gotten in the in the Dark Lord's good books, freed his family, and retired for the rest of his, you know, Death Eater life. The guy. Could have done, or Voldemort would have killed him for have, because he should have been the one to do it. But he did leave him on the train, though. He did put his invisibility cloak back on him and leave him yeah. on the train to go back away before he's uh, found in the films by Luna. Which is not how it works in the books, but that's fine. <laughs> No, and how you told me and how you explained it on that episode when we discussed the Half-Blood Prince, the book version is a lot better and it makes a lot more sense. It makes so much more sense than what Luna was doing, but that's neither here nor there for Malfoy. Although I think that actually, now that we bring up Luna, who you know is my favourite, I think that something is that is deeply missing from the movies and the books is Malfoy and Luna just sitting there having a cup of tea together, because that would be the most ridiculous conversation you've ever heard. He would just be out of his mind, like, what is this chick on about? And she would just, like, not even realise that he's... Yeah, tra-la-la. Yeah, just carry it on with it. I would love it. I, I, I've just realised I would give ungodly amounts of money to see this. Okay, okay, interesting. <laughs> well, we, we, we can try and use our collective power to twist, to bend Rowling, J.K. Rowling's ear to maybe get this? I would love it. Or hopefully someone's written a fan fiction where those two meet and fall in love or something ridiculous. I think... Druna. Yeah, man. Will be Laco. Um, Luna Malfoy good. <laughs> okay, that's better <laughs> than Druna, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> 
We're moving on from Druna. It's back to Drary. And we may, again, we have mentioned this, but they're, they're fighting the Half-Blood Prince when Draco is struggling with himself and he's in the bathroom crying. He's interrupted by Harry. And it's, you know, it's Harry that basically instigates the, the wand off. And yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's an awesome scene in the film, but it leads to obviously those serious injuries. Yeah, which obviously bad moment for Harry, but I think Draco's having a rough time this year. Yep. He's not having a good time. He's been tasked with basically an impossible task. The Dark Lord's given it to him so that he will fail and die. So I can't even imagine the pressure that he would be under. Yep, and then he, he turns to Moaning Myrtle for help, which is like the last thing I'd want to be doing. I'm sure Moaning Myrtle didn't mind. We know she likes to dive underneath the in, into the bath when men are in there. She loves the teenage boys. She absolutely... Even though she she's does. technically like hundreds of years old. Actually, no, she's not. Because she died in like when Voldemort was in school, so... Yeah, that's all right. She can get away with it. It's fine. <laughs> that's but... one hell of a cougar still. <laughs> exactly. And she, she's, she's technically not really there, so it's okay. Okay. <laughs> as long as it's not me, it happens to. It's fine, but... But yeah, before he was a bully, and now he's being asked to well, commit murder and do all these other things. So one hell of a step up from bully to murderer when you think about it. Yeah, it's weighing down on him, and it's and you can see, and also just in his general uh, appearance, he he gets look more waif and more gaunt as well. Yeah, he's definitely not taking it well. I mean, I think that the year in the end turned out about as good as it could have for Draco. Not for most other people, but for Draco. That was about as good as it could get. He didn't have to kill Dumbledore, but, you know, Dumbledore did die. And so, therefore, the Dark Lord is, like, fairly pleased and his family's not going to, like, be killed. And he's not going to be killed. It's that, you mentioned it, it's that next scene, which is probably the most famous, or one of the most famous scenes of which he's involved in, is the, the Battle of the Astronomy Tower, which wasn't really a battle as such in the tower, but it's kind of like the anti Kylo Ren where he's asked to do something but doesn't follow through with it. He's it. just a scared child. Dumbledore says you're not an assassin. But it you could see Malfoy's desperately trying to convince himself that he is the assassin, but he can't go ahead doesn't even though he's got all of his cronies around him, the Death Eaters, he can't do it. And it's you know, he's crying, he's upset, he's got it and that's when he finally snaps. He says he's got to do it or else Voldemort is going to kill him and his family. Yeah, and again, he's a family man, so he wants to save his family, but he's also got, you know, decency in him. And he's, you know, he as much as he's a wanker and he hates, you know, anyone in Hogwarts who isn't basically a Slytherin, he's still, you know, his parents really gave him a chance to have a good moral backbone by sending him to Hogwarts because he's still been exposed to good people and he's been exposed to who Dumbledore is as a person and so how do you kill someone like Dumbledore when you know them and even if it's going to risk your family you're going to want a way out yeah and he just couldn't bring in it's that moment we can really see that he's not the person we potentially thought he was or he thought he was oh yeah I think that that would have been a big moment for him I think he would have afterwards been like what the hell yeah, you have to think what would have what what do you think would have been the outcome or how do you think the direction of the story would have gone had he gone ahead and done it had he gone through with it? I think that would have been it for him, and I think that that's that's not necessarily the case if he was a real person, but in 
in uh, the wizarding world, they make it really clear that sort of killing someone is a massive shift physiologically in your body and like mentally, and it will make you a, a completely different person if you do actually kill someone. Cause they make that really clear with the Horcrux situation. So mm-hmm. I think that if, if Rowling had have written it that he had killed Dumbledore, I think he would have eventuated into being, you know, a really bad guy. Yeah, I think it would have been no black or white. I think had he been able to do it, it would have changed something inside him, like you say, and that would have been it. He could have been the equal or possibly even surpassed his father. Yeah, definitely, for sure. And I guess there's two more real Malfoy moments, and that's, the again, we've mentioned both of them. It's the moment in Malfoy Manor where he doesn't positively ID Harry, and the other one, uh, well, I guess other than him... His redemption almost at the end of the last film when they when they when he walks away from from the dark. But the 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 time the moment in the room of requirement where um, Harry saves Draco. It's is that twist on what happened before Draco hesitates during moments of it when they when he has Harry and he's got he's got his goons around him telling him to finish him and obviously his hesitation allows Hermione and Ron to arrive and we all know how the story goes. But I mean, you've got the moment. So those two moments intertwine. You've got Draco, essentially saving Harry's life, and on the flip side, Harry then later saves Draco's life in that last last uh, film or book. And I think that that's when they really put down their arms against each other, and they don't hate each other anymore. I don't think. I think they both recognise that they're never going to be buddies, and I don't think they ever want to be. But we know that in the you know nineteen years later situation that you know, they can respect each other and, and they're not going to be at each other's throats for the rest of their lives. It's sort of a maturing, you know, we're grown men now. We don't have childhood bullies. Um, but also we've been through this massive thing and we've both, we've both come to terms with the fact that we're not going to kill each other. So we might as well just put down our swords, basically put down our wands. Just, do you have that unsaid respect, which is pretty much what it is. Nobody ever, none of them ever really come out and say, anything particularly positive to each other but it's that nod at the end of the Deathly Hallows Part 2 when they're on the on the Hogwarts, uh, not Hogwarts we're on the, the uh, King's Cross Station platform with their children and it's that sort of very slight nod that they give each other and I think it would have been massive for their kids I think that, you know, if say 19 years later Harry and Ron are sitting at a pub, I think that they probably would talk shit about Malfoy but I think in front of their kids, <laughs> well, like, obviously they'd be like, oh, fuck, remember when Malfoy, like, fucking stole Neville's remember? What a dick. Um, <laughs> or, like, have you seen that Draco got a promotion? What a wanker. But, like, I don't think that they would have done that in front of their kids. I think that what they what really happened there in that room of requirement is that they grew past what their parents did and and especially Malfoy's parents did. And I think that they know that, you know, having this animosity towards certain people or like passing that down to your kids can create so much more pain and suffering than if you just let your kids, you know, create their own bullies. <laughs> so I don't, first, yeah. yeah, I don't think young Scorpius or any of the young Potters would have actually heard about any of that. I think that, that Harry and Draco would have wanted to give their kids a second chance to, get to know each other and maybe even like each other if they wanted to. Who knows? Yeah, and before we get on to the, uh, what happened after, whether, I guess, we've, we've gone through his major moments, are any of, those, any of those wildly different from how they're depicted in the books? No. All of those are pretty bang on from my memory. 
I mean, I think, no, they're all pretty much bang on. And I think that that's what's really, really cool about the movies. Like the movies get so much wrong, obviously, which is fine. (laughs) And I think that they get, they get a lot of characterization wrong, which often bothered me, but I think that they get Draco really, really right. I think that they, they understand Draco and they portray him really accurately. So even if there are like minor differences in how things go down, like he met Harry on the train versus meeting him in Madame Malkin's, I, I think overall they understood his character, which is the most important part. And so he got that key development in the movie that he got in the books. How he is, or how he looks, I guess, on screen, is that uh, conducive to how he looks? Is that how you've uh, pictured him when you were reading the books all those many years ago, if you can remember? Did you kind of picture him as this sort of scrawny, blonde-haired-looking weasel of a boy? I was really young when they came out, so I actually read the books. I think I... I don't know. I think I might have read the first book without seeing the movies, but I was so young, I honestly don't remember what I saw. And then afterwards, I'd seen the first film. So I, every, like, image that I had in my head was already of him. But he is, like, you know, this platinum blonde. He's supposedly got, like, a, a heart-shaped head, and he's, I think, and he's got, like, a pointy chin and a pointy nose. But other than that, like, I think they get him pretty bang on. Yeah, he looks pretty, he looks pretty Malfoy. Tom Felton looks well, when they bleach his hair, he looks pretty Malfoy. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, he just looks like a, a Draco, a Malfoy. Like, you know, it, it, when you think of, like, racists, you think of Nazis, right? And then when you think of Nazis, mm-hmm. you think of bleached blonde hair. With the whitest people you can find, essentially. Yes. So, <laughs> I don't yeah, you're not racist, accident. Tom, but yeah. yeah. That, I'm glad to know that they got that part of the film to book to film adaptation correct. And from what I've known and um, from what I've heard... They seem to have got him, for the most part, there's not an awful lot of change between him in the books to him in the films. Obviously, you can you can uh, go into further depth in the book as to what goes on into his head. But I think the films did a good job of that. And Tom Felton was the key to that. But yeah. I mean, af- we've mentioned after the saga, well, we after the end of the Battle of Hogwarts, later on, Draco married Astoria Greengrass. Who, who apparently his older sister was in the same year as him as Hogwarts, and they had a son, which you've already named as Scorpius. So you've got Draco Dragon and Scorpius. I'm guessing Scorpion. Yeah, well, I mean, now that you say that his wife's name is Greengrass, imagine going from this fantastic name, Astoria <laughs> Greengrass, to being Astoria Malfoy. I'd be like, I'm sorry, hun, I'm not taking your last name. And in fact, your <laughs> son's not taking your last name. Yeah. And actually, if I was Malfoy, I would have been like, yeah, and I'm changing my name to Greengrass, to be honest, because Malfoy has a bad flavour to it these days. Draco Sponge and Greengrass. He goes back to his roots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, they had they had their son, and he was raised to be a better person than Draco was as a child. Yeah. And growing up, Scorpius actually, he fancied, he had a bit of a crush on, on Rose, Granger Weasley, obviously Hermione and Ron's daughter, and... He's the best friend of Albus Potter, so, I mean, small world, isn't it? But uh, Draco didn't seem to mind that. We're getting into cursed child territory here, and I don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> yeah, your favourite your favorite <laughs> uh, part of the saga. Yeah. I mean, later on, a story passed away and it crushed Draco, but he didn't use the one-time turner, which he did have. He resisted the temptation to use that and go back in time to see his wife again just because of the family wishes and what it would basically 
it could what it could have done after the saga it has shown that he was a very loving caring person underneath it all yeah and i think that it's great that he got that opportunity and that he didn't throw it all down the drain when he killed, when he could have killed dumbledore so i'm glad that it shows that you can you know be better than your parents and that you you don't have to always be a victim of your upbringing and that you can rise above it if you're given the yeah. opportunity it's just a good message for everybody anyway that if, if you can gen- generally most people can have a second chance if you're really willing to to put your soul into it but yeah. it's quite nice that after years later Malfoy and Harry had a chat and Draco admitted that he didn't actually want the power like his father he just wanted to be a celebrity Quidditch player that's all he wanted but he knew he wasn't very good and he just wanted to be happy and it was the friendship Harry shared with Ron and Hermione which is what he envied the most because he just had Crab and Goyle with a poor sod so he kind of Holy shit. <laughs> yeah opened up slightly more to to Harry and in the end they they were never truly friends but they kind of had that they they, they then they had more of a, a kinship growing up but uh, sorry as they got older but they were never really true friends but it's nice to know that they kind of were able to put the past behind them to an extent kind of sad when you think about it though like if if Draco had just been nice to Harry and Ron and Hermione they probably would have been friends with him you know well, yeah, I mean, if knowing what you know at the end, then, yeah. They could have been friends from the first book if he had just not been a dick. Yes, and he could have been a very powerful ally to them. Yeah, and they could have been just going on holidays together, just, like, picnics and all the rest of it, but no, he had to be a wanker. Exactly, they could have torn up Malfoy Manor, uh, annoyed Lucius. They could, you know, what I mean, they could have uh, had him tearing his long, luscious, oh blonde, my bleached God, hair out, driven him up the wall. But then think about <laughs> it: when Voldemort did come back, imagine the like situation he would be as a father to like, oh, like Voldemort wants me back and he wants to know where Harry is, and I know he's like having a sleepover with Draco right now and they're roasting marshmallows, <laughs> but I can't tell him that. <laughs> <laughs> Lucius would have uh, probably taken to living under underwater. Yeah, <laughs> you would have <laughs> just try and get just away. Done your runner then at that point. <laughs> that yeah, I would have done my runner six have, feet under. Like, because what do you even do? Uh, yeah, I I know where the boy who lived is. Uh, he actually came over for a roast dinner tonight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he's having yeah. a bath. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Lucius isn't in right now. Please leave a message. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's you. I can hear it's you on the other end of the phone. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> so there's that. There's his arc throughout the books slash film. So we've gone through him. We've gone through the major moments and his key moments. So now the key question is, Professor McGregor, what is your favourite Malfoy moment throughout the whole of the saga? I want to pick something like really touching where he's done something really great. But honestly, it's when Hermione punches him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that. Um, just deep in my soul. It's very cathartic to watch him get like, just absolutely knocked in the nose. So, yeah, that's it for me. <laughs> Everything about it. The fact that his fact that who his assailant is, how he is before, the reason why he gets a punch in the face, and also because he dared speak foul of Buckbeak as well. So mine would be, actually, speaking of Buckbeak, it is... It's the moment where he sees how successful Harry was at taming the anim- the beast. And then, yeah, like I said, doesn't listen to his teacher. Tries to be the big man in front of everybody. Uh, try- and ends up getting attacked 
whining and cries off, and that's when again we get the my father will hear about this. We will be struck off the school, Hagrid. It's that moment where he kind of you get to see both sides of him in one go. You get yeah. to see the cocky, arrogant little shit that he is, and then as soon as you know he gets lashed out at, he turns into this whiny little weasel who again hides behind his father's reputation. Yeah, true. That's a really good um, like comparison of the two kind of Draco moments. Yeah, I do like that moment, but it's just something so good about him getting punched in the face. It's just nice to know that both of them involve him getting hurt. And they're both in the third book, actually. It must have been a good <laughs> like, Oh, yeah. He doesn't do anything that bad in that book, I guess. He's, he's had better books, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's mainly where we go with the character. Now, you mentioned Tom Felton earlier on, the dude who brought Draco to life. Stupid question. Was he, the, was he a, in hindsight, was he the right fit? Did he bring him to the screen as you would have wished? He was perfect. I think that he was almost one of the best people that they cast in that film, especially with, um, you know, casting young kids is such a hard task. You just don't know what they're going to be like when they're older, but he, he pretty much nailed it. He's such a skilled actor, I think. And it's because of him that, you know, we got that characterization developing and we got to know Draco as more of a, a tortured soul and, you know, someone that, you know, he was exactly like he was in the book because of the way that Drake, uh, Tom Felton portrayed him with his face. His face did such a fantastic job. Yeah, he acted a lot with his expressions and mannerisms and just his general appearance, just as much as his words and his and the way he spoke them. He had such a smarmy voice when he took on that character. It was wonderful. Yeah, I agree. He obviously went on to do, he went on to, I think, just get him to the Greek he was in. He did Rise of the Planet of the Apes. So he was recently in Megan Levy. And I think he stars... He's in The Flash. I didn't realise that. So, um, of course he is here. He's uh, Julian in The Flash, isn't he? Yeah, which just blew my mind when that happened in the show. Yeah. I loved it. He was great. He was a little bit of a Draco character in there. So I loved it. But he got his redemption arc, which was great. But what I like as well is he hasn't been overly typecast i don't think either he no. in, the, in the roles he's been doing in megan levy he's a sergeant in ophelia which is a period drama he's completely undraco he stars opposite daisy ridley in that film in get him to the greek he actually stars as himself so you can't really <laughs> be typecast as yourself and he was a and he was dodge in the rise of the planet of the apes <laughs> again completely unmalfoy like so I, I like the fact that he hasn't just spent his career since then just playing sort of snivelly weasel bullies yeah, and I think that that's part of, like, all the kids who grew up playing Harry Potter characters would have been very hard for them to move out of that um, and get other gigs if they wanted to. And he's done a great he's done a great job of that. And I think it's because he actually is just such a strong actor and you can see that in the Harry Potter films. You can see him grow. He's just such a remarkable actor that it's hard to typecast someone like that. Daniel Radcliffe's evidently trying extremely hard to distance himself not from not out of spite but obviously doesn't want to be known as Potter for his life and he's done a variety of weird interesting and generally I like most of the things that, that Danny Radcliffe's in Emma Watson I think is finding it slightly harder to to break out of the mold and Rupert Grint is kind of flitting between TV and Ed Sheeran videos I'd say Daniel Radcliffe and Tom Felton out of the child actors are the two who have really kind of 
broken away more from their the characters who made them famous than yeah. Emma Watson and Rupert Grint. Yeah, and I think Emma Watson, like, I think one of the reasons is because she really is her character. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's hard not to be yourself when, you know, you've played yourself for so long and then people recognize that that is who you are as well. I mean, Beauty and the Beast was pretty, like, she's pretty much Belle. And Hermione in a yellow dress. Annie. Yeah. Yeah, good film though. But So yeah, and Tom Felton also released a documentary in 2015, which is, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's fantastic. And I do mean that. It He, he shot it himself and it, it's him going to conventions, filming his interactions with the fans, you know, the people who who wait like three or four hours in line just to meet these actors like him and how they tell him how these films and books change their lives. And what it isn't is it isn't a kind of sneery look at, you know, fandom nowadays and these kind of quote unquote shadows who queue up at conventions. This is the, this is an actor who is going out of his way to bond with the people who put so much back into what he has given to them. And it's fantastic. It's it's called Superfans. It's on, I think it's on YouTube, but it's from about two or three years ago. It's called Superfans. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend checking it out. I'm going to watch that tonight. That sounds amazing. I love him. Re- I love Tom Felton. And apparently... You'll like him even more after this. Apparently every now and then he'll just text um, Daniel Radcliffe, Potter. <laughs> <laughs> I love That him. sounds awesome. <laughs> I love Tom Felton. Oh, what a great guy! But once you see how he that... is on the Superfans, you'll be you'll love him even more because it's a really nice. It's heartfelt. It's not mawkish, but it's just a nice. It's just nice to see somebody, yeah, respecting their fans and giving back. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. And I think that it's because of him that I like Draco so much. I think that if the actor in the movies had been crap, I think that I actually would have just been like, actually, I'm not going to delve into you know, the struggles um, and the tortured soul that Draco is. I think he's just a wanker, so. <laughs> well, yeah, in lesser hands, he could have either come off a sort of pantomime, a parody, cardboard, or just uninteresting. Yeah. So, no, he did an amazing job. What a guy. What a guy. Yeah, uh, what a man. If you're listening, if you're listening, Tom, your beard <laughs> looks great. Keep on keeping on, brother. And um, just if you want my address, um, you know, I'll plug my Instagram, so... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Give me a DM. Slide into those DMs. We'll get to that and you can flirt with Tom Felton later on. <laughs> um, I guess so before we wrap it up, your conclusion, your overall thoughts on the character himself from start to finish and what he represents. Such a great flip side to what Harry could have been and a really good representation of how, you know, even if your parents love you, they might still be damaging your chances at being a good person and you know you always have a chance to redeem yourself so I think he's a really good representation of that really lovely tortured soul and um should have definitely married Harry <laughs> on that note where where the hell is Drarry yeah um, yeah I think he misunderstands himself which yeah. is the most interesting thing he's not a villain as much as he portrays himself as one when when the chips are down he's he is just a scared child which is not meant as a negative because he is only a child at the time, mm. and he eventually makes the right decision. He sees the, he sees the wrong in what he does, and event and goes on to have a better life. And in that, imparts that wisdom into his child, which is you know mm. the most rewarding thing he could ever do. So misunderstood why he isn't the villain. He is not the villain of the piece, but he's also a very entertaining one of that. So in those first four books and films, 
he's kind of like the class clown villain almost. And then obviously yeah. later on, it, it becomes more of a an attempt of being the bad guy, if you will, the secondary bad guy. But he kind of has a bit of everything to his character. Yeah, which I love. Yeah. So check out that Supervans documentary. But I mean, in terms of the, the Malfoy episode, that that's that for this episode. So thank you once again, uh, Professor McGregor, for giving your time during the morning to come on and talk some Potter. My pleasure. Seriously. <laughs> Can't the think of anything to look up to, to be honest. Well, other than Tom Felton, but where can the world <laughs> find you online? Well, Tom Felton can find me at <laughs> McGregor on Instagram and um, my blog, which I've been neglecting recently, um, manicpixiefilmgirl.com, but I'm sure I'll do something soon. <laughs> yeah, please do, because your ramblings are entertaining and very informative as well. So it's not just a man ramblings of a mad woman. <laughs> they they are very good. So yeah, check out. And also, if you want to see how the how the other side live, check out Morgan's Instagram and and the awesome work which she puts into a company and the stride she is making with that. Check it out, please do. If you want to find me, you can find me what I watched tonight code uk. Uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, back on Facebook to search for what I watched tonight. Anywhere you can find podcasts, we are there, and I mean anywhere. Uh, we're also on Rotten Tomatoes now. We are certified. We're up there with the real deal. We've managed to snivel our way in with the big boys. So uh, we now control the percentages and what annoys people online in terms of criticism. So uh, check that out. If you like the show podcast, which we know you do because you tune in uh, month after month. So if you do like it, tell other Potter fans. Tell them there's a show out there which goes into everything they like. Leave us a review and a rating on iTunes. Share the show. Do anything you can. Get the word out. It helps us out an awful lot. And it's just, you know, nice for us to hear that you like it. So if you don't like it, just shush. Nobody needs to know about that. Um, So on that note, once again, thank you so much. Until next time, from me, it's Sia. And from Morgan. Kakite ano. Taha.